back to our journey through the Bible called The Story. As we pick up this week in this episode of, of David's life, we're looking at how God's story and your story, the upper story and the lower story that interact together. Um, you were, were dropped into this uh, planet, onto this stage the day you were born, however long ago that was. And when you were dropped onto the, the planet from your mama, you were dropped onto the stage that God was already orchestrating. God is the director. You are simply one of the actors on the stage, if you will. And you didn't have a choice about that. You don't have a choice of being in God's show. Your choice is whether or not you are going to be a part of uh, the good side or the bad side. That's your choice. There's no choice of being in the show. And so this morning, as we continue this journey, we saw previously how God had been working through a, a particular man, Abraham, that he had called. And through Abraham, he was going to make a nation. And the nation is numerous as the stars in the sky. Um, and then after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and we got out of the book of Genesis, and we, we looked at Joshua and how God freed his people from, from the Exodus, and then Joshua was going to lead them into the promised land. And the story continued, and the people eventually wanted a king. And that was the previous couple episodes we looked at, how Saul was the first king. But then David, shepherd boy, was anointed the king because Saul lost the kingship. And we want to pick up there and remind you that the Bible is not a mural that tells a single story. We have this uh, aptitude of ourselves that we look at David and we look at all the characteristics about him to emulate. And we are going to talk about a characteristic of David today, his heart after God's heart, that uh, is a good character attribute. But here's what you need to understand, and I will hopefully drive this home this morning as well. David is not the hero. Saul is not the hero. Abraham is not the hero. Isaac is not the hero. Jesus is the hero. God is the hero of every story in the Bible. It's God's story. You're never the hero. God's the hero. And that's what we need to understand. That is the thread that goes through the whole Bible the single story that God is trying to get every person in the world to know who he is and have a relationship with him. This morning I want to look at the idea of David, specifically man of God and man of greed. Yes, opposites, two sides of the coin. And that is what we're going to find with David. Too far into that, the story of, of David, compelling as it is, the example of this, this epic narrative in the Hebrew Scripture. Going from 1 Samuel 16 to 1 Kings chapter 2, this portrayal of Israel's illustrious hero. Really, there, there's no other tale like this in the ancient Near East. But let me mention a few verses that we have in Scripture as we get this set up. So before we can fully understand David, we've got to understand the setup, and that's Saul. Saul's the setup. So this is a little bit of a rewind for us, but in 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 16 uh, through 17, Samuel came. He said, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. So, so God has anointed through Samuel the prophet. The man Saul. That's who's got his, got his picking. Now Saul is going to turn out to be disobedient. He's not going to follow through with what God asked of him to do. When Samuel saw Saul, 
The Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. And so God here has, has chosen out Saul. But he doesn't obey. He decides, as, as we talked about two or three weeks ago, that is, instead of following exactly what God wanted, instead of listening to the prophet who represents God, he, he was going to do his own thing. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, we read, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. You notice the word commanded. I, I've highlighted that for you on the screen because it occurs a couple of times in the verse. Okay? 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us that, that Saul... Blew it. He didn't follow after God. Now, what he had done was completely logical in the scene. You and I might have done the same thing. But, see, logic's not the name of the game with God. In fact, often logic is counterproductive to what God is trying to accomplish. Instead, it's about trust and faithfulness. And Saul chose logic over trust and faithfulness. If you look carefully, the narrator is trying very hard to let us know that there was no way possible for Saul to win the battle apart from God's help. Let me key you into a few things that occurred back in the text, okay? The Philistine army, it was said, was as numerous as the sand in chapter 13, verse 6 of 1 Samuel. Well, that's exactly what Israel was supposed to become, according to Genesis 12, 3 and following, as numerous as the sand or the stars of the sky. But instead, the Philistines are as numerous. The Israelites were fleeing from the Philistines, just like the unbelievers flee from Yahweh's reigning judgment in Revelation 6.15. They were trying to hide in the caves. That's exactly what it says in Revelation. And so you have this picture of the Israelites between a rock and a hard place. Worse than last, they are, they're overtaken. They have an enemy there's no way they can conquer. The forces of evil are beyond their control. And that's kind of the point. They're beyond the forces of evil are behind your control. You cannot stop the forces of evil. You don't have supernatural powers. You're not Superman. You're not Batman. You're not Catwoman. You can't do it. It's all kryptonite. You'll fall. Saul tried. Remember the, the people, they had said back in 1 Samuel 8.20 that they wanted a king like the other nations that our king will judge us. He'll go out before us and he'll fight our battles. But Saul isn't out fighting the battle. Saul's in his tent, afraid, afraid of Goliath. In 1 Samuel 12, 14, because if you fear the Lord, you worship and obey him. And if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who rules over you will follow the Lord your God. If you don't uh, rebel against the Lord's command, except what do we find here? The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded. So he has not followed through with 1 Samuel 12, 14. He hasn't done what God commanded. And so God has commanded a new man because Saul didn't do what God commanded him. Thus, in the New Testament, the New Testament Saul, who becomes Paul, confessed in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, when I am weak, strong. Why? Because when he's weak, the power of God able to work through him. Samson didn't have his own strength. Samson had strength only in the Lord. When the Lord left him, he had no strength. He was beaten up by the Philistines. He was nothing at all. Not, with God, not without God. 
Now, in Mesopotamia and in Israel, the king ruled for the gods, but not as a god. In Egypt, the pharaoh ruled as the god who was upon earth among mortals. So what you have to understand is that whereas pharaoh of Egypt, they literally viewed him as coming directly descended from the gods, not so in Israel. You see, the king of Israel was not a god. He ruled as a representative. He ruled and was supposed to do what God commanded him to do. So when Saul disobeyed, he wasn't just disobeying prophet Samuel when Samuel had told him, wait until I come. No, when he disobeys the prophet, he's disobeying God. Because the prophet speaks for God, the prophet represents God. The prophet is the voice piece of God on the earth. The sacrifice that Saul was to offer was a free battle ritual sacrifice related to the fact that war was worship and war was holy and war was initiated by Yahweh, not man. It was God's idea that the Canaanites had finally sinned so much over 400 plus years that he had waited for them to change their ways and they had not changed their ways. So God was going to do two things at once. He was going to judge and punish the Canaanites for their sin, their idolatry, and their hatred of him. And at the same time, he was going to bless the Israelites by giving them the land. Salvation through judgment. God promised to give them the land. But they couldn't take it by mere force. God was going to lead them and win the battles for them. So with Samuel representing the presence of God and him not being there, it was as if God wasn't with them. So it doesn't matter that Saul goes and offers the sacrifice. Yes, God, we want to worship you. Yes, God, we want your help. It doesn't matter because the presence of God was lacking. Just like when Samson got up to, to go fight the Philistines and he didn't realize the spirit of God had left him. He could do nothing on his own. I think Jesus said that. You can do nothing on your own. Apart from me. Interesting fact that related to this kingship idea in the ancient Near East. As far as we know, there's no other account of ancient history that demonstrates a god deselecting a king. Saul's the only one in all of history that we know of in the ancient Near East. And so that's our setup. So the setup moves us into David, the man of God. So what is it about David, the man of God? In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or his stature, because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. As the prophet Samuel goes to select the son of the house of Jesse, and he looks at these men, he's looking at the strapping, strong men. David's not even there. He's out taking care of the sheep. The young one. God says he looks at the heart. What's the focus on that? We skip forward a few verses in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and we get to verse 18. One of the young men says, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He's a valiant man, a warrior, eloquent, handsome, and the Lord is with him. King Saul was being troubled by these evil spirits. He wasn't having good days. He wanted someone to play some nice, soft music to help him. And they mentioned David. And what do we find again? The idea that the Lord is with him is mentioned. This is the whole key. 
continue on in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 8. says relating to Goliath the great giant of the Philistines he stood and he shouted to the Israelite battle formations why do you come up to line up in a battle formation am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul choose one of your men and have him come down against me now you have to understand the scene there's a valley in the middle there's a mountain on this side there's a mountain on this side the Philistines are on one mountain the Israelites are on the other mountain there's a valley down in between Philistines have armor much better than the Israelites. They have better swords. They have better weapons. The Israelites are like farmers compared to them. And Goliath says, listen, there's no point in everybody going to battle. I'll just fight whatever man you send to me. Whoever wins, everybody else can go home. You lose. It's going on for 40 days. No one's willing to take the challenge. No one's willing to go to the battle. I want you to know this. That he says, you are servants of Saul. Goliath got something a little bit wrong. It's not servants of Saul. It's servants of God. Israel was supposed to be servants of God. The problem is they became servants of Saul. That's exactly what was prophesied when they were said they wanted a king like the other nations. You will become the servant of the king. Servitude to the king will lead eventually to enslavement to the foreign rulers. The Philistines will rule over the Israelites for years. They will be hard-pressed to expel them. David, however, comes at Goliath in the power of the Lord. Saul has already lost the power. In, verse, in seven verses, when David comes, the actions of David are recounted with 36 verbs. David is on the move. He's going, going, gone. Heads are rolling, or at least Goliath is. The action is fast. It's quick. What does David say when he goes up against him? He says in chapter 17, verses 45 to 47, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a dagger, a spear, and a sword, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down. Cut your head off and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. And then all the world will know what? That Israel God. And this whole assembly will know that it's not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. It is the battle of God. It is the Lord's battle. This is why the prophet Samuel needed to show up. Lord's battle. It wasn't Saul's battle to win. It's not your battle to win. It's God's battle. God wins the battle. And so this, this sparks a career for David that results in great triumphs. Okay? David, a man after God's own heart. Look at the David's triumphs here. Okay? He's a man after God's own heart. His will was completely committed to the will of God. As a dedicated servant of God, he was used by God to perform mighty acts for the sake of his chosen people. Look at some of the things that David did. Okay, he becomes king of Judah and then king of Israel. Like, why twice? Well, because there was the southern part and the northern part, all right? And he had to kind of get them together. He conquers the city of Jerusalem. Nobody had been able to take it. Jerusalem was a fortress. He conquered it, and eventually he makes it his capital. He got the ark returned. It had been sitting somewhere else for 20 years. God comes in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel and makes a covenant with him. 
that he will have a king from his line forever. He defeats the Philistines, he defeats Moab, he defeats Ammon, and he defeats Syria. David is on a move. David is on a roll. Why? Who's fighting the battles? God's fighting the battles. God's winning the wars. God's directing the wars. David inquires. Before, when, when King Saul was trying to attack him, David refused to kill him. David would inquire of God. Should we go attack the Philistines here? Will you give them into our hand, or should we wait? He asked God. Psalm 119, 97 says, How I love your instruction. It is my meditation all day long. David loved God's word. David meditated in God's word. Do you? Do you love God's word? Or would you rather do something else? What are you drawn to? To be a man after God's own heart, you've got to love what God loves. You've got to love the word of God. Why? Because it reveals who God is. You've got to love God's people. You've got to love worshiping God, praising God in song. Using your skills for God, not for you. In Psalm 84, 2, we read of a heart longing and singing for joy in God. Maybe some of you know the song. My, my heart longs for you like a, like a deer pants for running water. Maybe you guys never saw a dog. When a dog in the middle of the summer is hot, what's it doing? Panting. Tongue's hanging out of his mouth. Those tongues are long sometimes. You've seen those dog's tongues? Yeah? You're like, whoa, how far back did that go? He's just panting. He just wants some what? Water. And you put a bowl of water, and what's that boy do? Yeah, he does. Right? Lick, 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 lick. Give me all that water. What is the psalmist saying? What is David saying? He's saying, I'm like that dog that's so thirsty for the water, like the deer. I just want to drink in the word of God. Let's just be honest. Is that where you're at? David says, boys, I long to meditate in your word day and night. What do you like to do day and night? If you have your choice, what is it you like to do day and night? Is it meditate in the word of God? Because that's what we're seeing here. It's a characteristic of a man whose heart is devoted to God. Unfortunately, there's another side to David. Yep, he's a man of God. But there's also, gentlemen, the fact that he's a man of greed. Unfortunately, this negative side of David comes through in several stories in Scripture. I want you to read with me 2 Samuel 11. It's a well-known story, but it clearly demonstrates and is a climactic point in David's life. David's life goes from, from triumph to trials, from uphill battle of victories to one night that ruins his entire life. Guys, you need to listen. You could spend your entire life building something, and it will be gone like that. One wrong move, one wrong decision, one wrong thing said, you're done. 
I mean, it's all in the news now, but Bill O'Reilly was on vacation, and while he was on vacation, he's fired. Okay? I never really listened to the guy, but he's a top rater on Fox. He's had a show for 20 years. Allegations finally caught up to him. Like that. He went on vacation. He figured when he came back, he'd go back to his job. Nope, he's done. Now he'll do something else. I saw this morning. I think he's already started some other blog thing. But anyways, he's done with that. That's how that's how fast it goes. Okay, one wrong decision. You're out of your job. Second Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, when kings march out to war. So where do kings go in the spring? War. You know why? It's not harvest season yet, but it's not rainy season. It's in between the rainy season and the harvest season. So guess what? That's when we go fight the battle. Why? Because we got to get back home for harvest season, and rainy time's no good for fighting battles. So in the springtime, when kings, the word there is actually messengers, march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all of Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So in the spring, when kings go to war, where's King David? In his house. He's not at battle. Verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and he strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her and he reported, It's Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. She's married. Verse 4, David sent messengers to get her. The word is take her. And when she came to him, he slept with her. Now she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and afterwards she returned home. And the woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. A whole bunch of weeks just passed by probably in those couple of verses. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. That's the husband. So Joab sent Uriah to David. Okay, now remember, Joab and Uriah are off where? At battle, okay? They didn't, they didn't show up the next day. He's got to send a guy on a horse with a message. Okay? Then the guy's got to get to the battle, find Joab, find Uriah. Then Uriah's got to get on a horse or a walk or whatever and get back home, right? Takes a little time. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and the gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. Go down keeps showing up. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home or go down. David questioned Uriah, haven't you just come from a journey? Why didn't you go home or go down? Uriah answered David, the ark Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Now, you don't understand this. You're like, are you kidding me? Yeah, I'd be with her. Hello. Okay, but you don't understand the culture. You don't understand the Israelite covenant and the commitment. See, when they went to war, it was worship. When they went to war, they were consecrated to God. When they went to war, it was a holy aspect. And so during the time of war, forbidden from engaging in relationships with women. And so he cannot do that or else he will make himself unfit for the battle. Verse 12, stay here today also, David said to Uriah, tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. David invited Uriah to eat and to drink. Why? Because he's hoping he'll finally get him to go do what he wants him to do. 
He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home or go down. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, and then withdraw from him so he is struck down and dies. Take Uriah. I want you to go to the worst part of the battle. I want you to let Uriah start fighting, and I want everybody else to get back. Because he gets killed. This is murder. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from uh, David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you're finished telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight, didn't you realize they would shoot uh, from the top of the wall at uh, Sebez, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerobosheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Then say this, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In other words, if David doesn't like what's going on, just hey, just say, hey, Uriah died, and then it'll be okay. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David. Have you noticed the word messenger yet? It keeps recurring. The men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the gate. However, the archers shot down on your soldiers from the top of the wall. Some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David told the messenger, hey, say to Joab, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all. Like, hey, it's okay. You know, it's no big deal. You lost some guys. You have to be real compassionate, right? Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it and encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. And when the time of mourning ended, David brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, look at this. The Lord considered what David had done to be Evil, wicked. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is the next verse. Now, notice the messengers all over. David is sending messengers all over the place. Send this person to do this. 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 And then, when it's all over and said, God sends a person to David. So David... The man of greed. David, the man who already had multiple wives, who got bored one night. Be careful, gentlemen, what you do when you're bored. Okay? Boredom is an attitude of the mind. Okay? I don't know what boredom is. Boredom is an attitude of the mind. In 2 Samuel 12, 1, when the Lord sent Nathan to David, when he arrived, he said... And here begins a story. I'm not going to unpack the whole story. You saw it in the video. Nathan, the messenger of God, comes to David. This is about a year later, by the way. And tells him a story of a rich man who owned lots of sheep. And he wanted to have a dinner for a guest. Instead of using one of his many, many, many sheep, he went over next door to a guy who had just one little sheep. like a kid to him. And the rich man stole the sheep and killed it and gave it to his guest instead of using it. And David sees the outrageousness and the greed of this and says, kill the man. And that's exactly 
what God wanted him to realize. In that whole passage, if you read 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a repetition of the word man. It's all throughout the passage. Man, 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 man. And then you get down to the bottom of it, and it's a repetition of the word take or took. He took and he took and he took and he took. Now, I want to rewind and remind you of something. When Samuel told the people what would happen when they wanted a king, he told them a couple of things, and two of them were, you will become servants to the king because the king will take and take and take and take and take. What did Saul do? He took your sons and daughters and made them soldiers. What has David done? He took your women and made them his. David took from another in verses 9 through 11. And so God will take from him. David took in secret and in private, but God will do this in public. David's own son will take his future wives and concubines and sleep with them on public at the top of his house. David's act was treason. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 13 and 14, David responded to Nathan. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. But because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. So we've had almost a year. We've had nine months past now. And the son's born, right? Your sin hurts other people. Your sin can destroy other people. This little baby did nothing. But this little baby was the result of sin. Doesn't mean the baby's sinful. I mean, all people are sinful, so I mean, it's born a sinner. But not because of what took place. It's just born a sinner because we're all born in sin, okay? But what happens to the baby? It dies. Now you need to understand something. Another time. The baby died, but who should have died? David should have died for both adultery and murder. But David gives grace and mercy. And we're like, what? Saul didn't wait for the prophet. And he loses the kingdom. David sleeps with a woman that he steals from another man and then kills a man and he gets off the hook. That's messed up. God's ways are very hard to find out. David doesn't actually get off the hook. His act of treason has grave consequences. His sin hurts others, just like yours does. But he does get mercy. But there is more to the story. It's very confusing because you ask, why doesn't God intervene and save Uriah? Think about that. Uriah dies too. Uriah is innocent. Uriah was one of David's right-hand men as far as soldiers go. So God didn't stop it. You need to understand this. People ask this all the time. If God's so powerful, why doesn't he stop the evil? God didn't stop Uriah from being murdered. God didn't stop... David from stealing Bathsheba from Uriah. He let all that play out. He let all that happen. Right, Ronaldson? He gives you 
the ability to make decisions in your life. You or some other trash. It's your choice. The complexities of these questions are too deep to fully answer because God's ways are too deep for us to understand. However, at least part of the issue is that God is remaining faithful to his covenant promise that he made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Despite David's failure to be faithful, God had promised that he would have a person from the line of David on the throne. That means there's got to be a child from David that lives. That means David can't die yet unless he's got a kid. David has another child with Bathsheba. His name is Solomon. He becomes the next king. So see, God does a redeeming act through this. But you have to also understand that somebody did die because of that sin. That baby boy died. Now David grieved for that baby boy, but we don't see that he actually repented of his actions. Not right there. Not until Nathan shows up and points his finger in his face. And Psalm 51 is the record of David's repentance. And this is important for you to understand, because this ties together the man of greed and the man of God. How could David be called the man of God? How could David be, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this picture of following after and being devoted to God, but he was also a man of greed? I'll show you how. In Psalm 51, verse 10 to 11, it says, this is why we sing this today. God create a clean heart for me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now we didn't read the whole psalm, but the psalm is a record of David's admission to God that he was a sinner, that he did wrong. And he says in that psalm, against you, God, and you only have I sinned. Your sin is not just a sin against your parents your siblings, excuse me, your teachers, your friends. Your sin is a sin against God. Every time you don't live the way God wants, the way you think, the way you talk, the way you act, it's a sin against God, the creator of the universe. And David recognizes that. David comes to his knees. He bows his knees in repentance. And guess what? When you humble yourself and repent before God, he offers you grace, mercy, and forgiveness. What makes David a man after God's own heart is not his perfection, for he was not perfect, but rather his willingness to repent when confronted with his sin. Now why in his blindness it took a year or so and a prophet of God to show him, I don't really know, except that we're all blind to our own faults sometimes. David had prayed for the baby to be saved, but evidently he had not yet repented of the actual sin that brought forth the baby. No, James says that desire, not controlled, gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. David's unchecked desire for the woman led literally to a baby, a baby born out of sin, a baby that then died because of David. The story doesn't end there. The story continues. We move to 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, sometime later. It says that David is in a difficult position. It's in a battle situation because the troops talked about stoning him. They were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and their daughters. 
But David found strength where? Xavier, where did David find strength? He found strength in the Lord. He found strength in the Lord. So sometime later, we find that David is still seeking strength in God. He's still meditating on God. And in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, For the eyes of Yahweh roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those whose hearts are completely his. God is looking for men and women who will give their entire lives to him. And for those who do that, he will show himself strong. That means he'll fight your battles. That means he'll make you strong. That means he'll make you a winner. Not a winner for you, a winner for him. A winner for him. So where does this leave us? David is a man after God's own heart. He's a man of God. He's a man of greed. Well, I'll tell you where it leaves us. David. He's just a man. That's where. David. Yep, he was a man that loved God. But he was not a perfect man. He was a flawed man. He was a sinner. He needed saving. He's just a man. So despite the fact that David was chosen by God, loved by God, meditated on God's word, was quick to repent when confronted, he was still a man. Demonstrating that the best you get is still a flawed man. The best king Israel has is still a flawed king is still a flawed man. Demonstrating that there is something greater needed. The flawed man who would take instead of give. And thus the scripture does not hold David up as a paradigm of virtue to be followed as much as it holds him up as a type of the king that Israel needs. What do you find in the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do you find that Israel is waiting for a new and a better king David who becomes known as who eventually will become Jesus. The later writers of scripture, even as they defend the Davidic kingdom, they acknowledge David's sin with Bathsheba. It's the one blight on his life. In 1 Kings 5, 5, it says, For David did what was right in the Lord's eyes, and he did not turn aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Jeremiah 3.15 speaks of the future after the exile when we're looking forward to a time where a new type of king. He says, I will give you shepherds who are loyal to me. They will shepherd you with knowledge and skill. This is the kind of leader or shepherd or king they needed, the kind that Jesus will be. There's another passage we should consider. First Chronicles 28.3, we're given the reason why David is not to build a temple or a house for God. See, David asked to build God a temple. God said, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'll build you a house. There's a play on words there. What, what he's saying is, no, I don't need you to build me a house, you know, with your hands for me to dwell in. But I'll build you a house, a dynasty, okay? I will build through your sons, okay? And he said, your son Solomon can build it. He said, no, you're a man of war, David. You've shed too much blood. This is a phrase that God used of Gilead, who was a man of war in Joshua 17, 1 as well. So despite the fact that David won all these wars... There was this aspect of bloodshedding that God is not too keen on. What appears to be David's overreaction to Nabal in 1 Samuel 25 may also fit into this aspect. The intervention of Abigail, Nabal's wife, keeps David from carrying out his murderous threats. David then marries her after Nabal dies by God's hand. And thus we see that despite David's greatness and David's heart after God, he was not good enough. He was just a man. And there was a need for a greater man. In Acts chapter 13, verses 16 through 23, Paul uses David as an example of one chosen by God and faithful to God. Like Abraham was blameless, but not perfect. 
David was loyal, but not perfect. Listen to this, okay? And we're getting close to a close here. Acts 13, 16 to 23. Paul stood up and he motioned with his hand. He said, men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. God of this people, Israel, chose our ancestors. He exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt, and he led them out of it with a mighty arm. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave the land to them as an inheritance. And this all took about 450 years. And after this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And after removing him, he raised up, raised is the key word, David as their king, and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man loyal to me, who will carry out all my will. And from this man's descendants, according to the promise, God brought the Savior Jesus to Israel. So David is a man that God raised up, okay, from a shepherd boy to become king. This is the Apostle Paul talking years later, okay, hundreds of years later. And then he continues on, okay, and in verse 30 of the same chapter, Acts 13, it says this. Regarding Jesus. Remember, God raised up David. Same word. And now he talks about Jesus, who all the people killed. He says, but God raised him from the dead. And he appeared for many days to those who came with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. And so the Apostle Paul is connecting this idea of David, who was a man after God's own heart, but was just a man. And there was a need for a greater man. And he's saying, this greater man is Jesus. Yes, God raised up physically David from a shepherd boy to a shepherd king, but he raised up Jesus from the grave. That's a whole different type of raising up. Just as God raised up David, God raised up Jesus to be king of kings. Well, David was raised up from his father's house to be king. Jesus was raised up from the dead to be king of the universe. As Paul continues his word of testimony in Acts 13, 30, David, 13, verses 34 to 39, since he has raised him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way. I will grant you the faithful covenant, blessings made to David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not allow your holy one to see decay. For David, after serving his own generation and God's plan, fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and decayed. But the one God raised up, Jesus, did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him is justified from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So David was raised up from a child to become the shepherd king. But when David died, he was just a man, and his body decayed in the ground. But Jesus, appointed by God and raised up by God, not just a man, but the God-man, the man-God, was actually put in the ground for three days, but his body did not decay in the ground. Instead, he was raised in the resurrection that we just celebrated last Sunday at Easter. So David, a man of God, a man of greed, but just a man, Jesus, the man-God, raised from the dead to be the king that we all need. Not only do you need a king, need a resurrection. More than David's raising from shepherd boy to shepherd king, you need a resurrection of the spirit. Samuel was raised or reared by God from the time he was a little boy in the temple. 
David was raised or chosen by God to be king. Jesus was raised, made alive from the dead to be king over all. Paul was raised from death to life and was given new sight from his spiritual blindness. What do you need resurrected today? What's dead in you that needs resurrecting? So despite the fact that David was chosen by God, loved by God, meditated on God's word, was quick to repent when confronted, he's still a man. So the best you get is a flawed man, except for Jesus. Jesus, the true man of God, the true God-man. That's where we end this morning. Jesus is the one everyone's been waiting for. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the perfect king. Jesus is the true son. Jesus is the true man after God's own heart, for whom no guile was found in his mouth, no lies was deceit on his lips, no murder in his heart, no stealing, no taking, but rather he's the giver of life to all who desire it. David, a man of God, a man of dreams, but just a man. Jesus, not just a man. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name this morning for Jesus, the God-man, Jesus. You come in the flesh. God, we pray this morning that you might resurrect us, that you might make us alive, that you might take our, our dead spirits, our dead hearts, and make us alive. If people are not saved here this morning, that you would literally resurrect them and give them the Holy Spirit of God that would make them alive, that they would recognize and realize their sin like, like David finally did. And they would cry out to you and realize and say to you, God, I sinned against you, and you only have I sinned. I've heard lots of other people, but you only have I sinned. God, I pray that this morning, if anyone here that doesn't know you as Savior, they would cry out and say something like, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need your help. I know that I'm messed up. I also know that Jesus rose from the dead. He died to pay for my sins on the cross. Thank you that you died instead of me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Bring your Holy Spirit inside to make me new and to resurrect this dead body. Let me live for you. Let me live in the power of Jesus. Make me your child. We pray that this morning we become a follower of Christ. Now God will change your heart and your desires. You'll want to meditate in the scriptures. You'll want to love the word of God. If you're here this morning, you don't love the Word of God. Maybe that's because you don't love God. Maybe that's because you don't know God. Maybe that's because you've never been saved. Stop fooling yourself. You need a prophet from heaven to come down and put a finger in your face, like Nathan did to David, and said, you're the man. Well, can you just humble yourself before the Word of God this morning? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone, all have sinned. your life and receive. The Bible says believe and receive like we sang earlier this morning. 